Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I want to take you uh, on a trip deep into the memory bank. Do you remember a couple years ago, I don't know how long ago it was, where we were asked to sort of like predict the future of the NBA and come up with like the craziest next generation developments? And I think my... My idea was something along the lines of Mike D'Antoni going to coach the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves and unleashing Carl Anthony Towns as a point center. Yeah. So basically Towns was just going to bring the ball up on offense, do everything for them offensively, and then play center on defense. Yep. Well, the future is now Andrew, and his name is Zion Williamson, and he is far more intriguing as a point center candidate than Carl Towns could ever be. Uh, even on his best day, not his little uh, Carl Anthony Bennett ways that we've seen here over the last month. Um, this kid is is truly interesting. I completely understand why the entire internet is buzzing over his debut at Duke, and yeah. I'm not surprised in the slightest that somebody like you would just pick off the lowest hanging fruit and say, we got to open up this podcast with some Zion talk, because here we are. We really do. And by the way, credit to you. You're really trying to make Carl Anthony Bennett stick, and I'm not sure if it has legs, but I appreciate your resilience. Um the power of repetition Andrew it's the one thing I've learned from our president there you go um the all right so full disclosure here Ben and I our schedules got a little complicated so we recorded the second half of this podcast on Sunday night and for the first half we decided to keep it open a little bit and we do 15 or 20 minutes at the top with whatever the biggest story of the week was and right now I it does sort of seem like every NBA person I'm talking to just wants to talk about Zion Williamson. Did you see the game? Actually, hold on. What we'll do, we'll start with this quote from Steve Kerr here. Who? Well, what we should start with is a little bit more of a sell job, Andrew. Come on. You always go through these complicated, we did this, we did that. We provided about an hour of timeless takes over the weekend. They're going to be coming up after this current conversation here in the first 15 minutes. If Andrew had not even mentioned it, you wouldn't have even been able to tell because they're going to hold up just that well. Now go ahead with your Steve Kerr Okay, quote. so here is Steve Kerr who was asked about matching up with Giannis at Warriors shoot-around this morning, or I guess it was Warriors practice, but here was his answer. No, but I saw some kid on Duke last night who was pretty impressive. <laughs> my goodness, I, I, I probably can't say anything, anything more, or mention his name. The bigger one because or the I'll thinner get, one? Well, yeah, lots of them. Lots. Yeah. Uh, no, the, the one who's two eighty-five. Uh, I thought LeBron was. Uh, I thought that was that was a one 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 guy one shot deal, but apparently the, the next guy's coming. And, and before I get fined, I'm going to change the subject. <laughs> so there's Kerr. And by the way, credit to Kerr. Every year around this time, he starts talking about college prospects and then says, oh, but please don't find me. It's, it's becoming an annual tradition for him. But uh, uh, No credit to Kerr. Fine him. I thought that was inappropriate. <laughs> he can't go listing off his list weight and making these references to the next LeBron. I mean, come on. He's obviously planting the seeds for like 2027 free agency recruiting here. I can't have it, Andrew. It's true. Um, did you watch the game? I mean, what, it, what do you make of Zion right now? Because he kind of broke my brain against Kentucky Tuesday night. 
No, I mean, he's a very, very talented player. It's not like we just stumbled upon him. I've been watching his mixtapes on Bala's life for like, I think, 15 of his 17 years. I'm pretty sure he could dunk at the age of three. And, uh, you know, the high school competition he was playing against really afforded itself quite well to phenomenal like 27 minute long mixtapes where he's just dunking all over these poor kids so I've been on the Zion uh, train for a few years now the big question to me was like okay is this salary substance is he going to continue to be able to have this level of impact athletically as the competition improves and I think what you saw in game number one that's not really a question. <laughs> like He's still like the biggest, strongest, fastest player on the court. Uh, you know, I've seen some different comps. I saw Charles Barkley mentioned. I saw uh, Larry Johnson mentioned. Yeah. Uh, to me, there's some Draymond with a handle and like this crazy downhill mentality, but also like significantly more ups. And Andrew, like, you know how I feel about Draymond. Draymond is, to me, he's like straight out of laboratory, exactly what I want a player to be like. Um you know, in terms of two-way impact, sure. how hard he plays, leadership, defense, rim protecting. I mean, I think Zion still got some ways to go in terms of consistency defensively and, you know, that true, like, interior presence if you're going to play him at the five. But he is a really special offensive player. And I guess my takeaway was this, like, and this is how I always feel about college basketball. I've seen enough of Zion at the NCAA level. I'm good. I don't need to see another game. Uh, and especially after watching some of their, like the Duke Canadian preseason tour. I mean, good Lord, how sad was that? Yeah. The competition they're playing against. But just imagine Zion with uh, in, within a spread offense with four shooters, right? So take Giannis off, put Zion in. You've got the four shooters around him and go. Is that going to be a great NBA offense within two or three years of of him being in the league? I mean, the answer to me is yes. And so I think right now the premium on uh, you know players coming up, I'm looking for one-on-one guys who can uh, pose consistent matchup issues, who can, who can beat their guy off the dribble, take advantage of space, and then also have the passing instincts to serve as the number one lead playmaking option within an offense. And to me, Zion checks all those boxes. That's really interesting. I'm not totally sold just yet, but we'll get to that. For now... That's the wrong take. Bad take from you. I am not done watching Zion Williamson in college basketball because I think he is just going to murder people all year long, and it's going to oh, well, be typical. so much fun. When you, when you come along three years late, you know you want to get caught up. I understand. <laughs> what do you mean I'm three years late on Zion? What are you even talking about? This guy's been an internet sensation. You only want to talk about it when he plays at Duke. I know you visited the school. You're a big win connoisseur oh now. And you God. get all excited. <laughs> oh, yeah, NCAA basketball, like it really means something. Zion's been Zion since he's 15 years old, Andrew. No, I did see Duke practice back in September, and I think we mentioned it on the podcast. Really, all three of those freshmen looked great in the practice I saw. I thought Cam Reddish and R.J. Barrett shot the ball better than I expected. Um, the funniest part about that practice by the way it was one of their first practices of the year and they handed out a little agenda for a couple of the people who were there and um there was a scrimmage which was obviously like the most interesting part of the whole day and the scrimmage had like all caps letters no turnovers and so of course they let those guys go out and play and for the first like six minutes there was a turnover on every single possession so they did look like freshmen in a sense but with Zion specifically, you could just see nobody could handle him physically. And also his first step is so much more explosive than probably anyone in college basketball is going to have this year. And so, and I mean, RJ Barrett is in that conversation too, 
But um, it's going to be really fun to watch him make teams look totally helpless. And the other part of this story that I love, and you mentioned the 16-year-old viral sensation clips and, and whatnot, that's part of it for me because a lot of those clips he was dunking on like 5'8 white kids in South Carolina and he was 6'4, 6'5 and I really thought that it was going to head to kind of a dark place because he was becoming nationally famous at 16 years old and people were talking about him like a future NBA superstar and he just didn't have the makeup of someone who would have that kind of timeline and yet like you said, like we're here now. He he just made Kentucky look like a bunch of five eight white kids, and so I don't know where this is going. I really i I wish I could say like, oh, he's definitely LeBron. He's definitely gonna be in that Giannis mold. But he there's still enough room to to doubt that and worry about how he'll fit and and what position he'll play at the next level. But it's also I was pretty I exciting. was waiting nine minutes for you to raise the position question. I can tell you where it's going. First of all, Andrew, for the next six months, he's going to be playing against a lot of kids who look like five eight white kids, like you just said. I mean, come on, that's what that's what college basketball and is. That's going to be a lot of fun. We should enjoy yeah. that while it lasts. Yeah, if you say so. I think it's going to be a lot more interesting to see how he makes the adjustment to the pro level. Because, but I still wonder how many guys match up that well with him one-on-one and obviously rookie year you know it's going to take some adjustment right but like by year three like how many defensive players have the combination of size strength quickness uh, and lateral movement to really be able to you know handle him on the perimeter handle him on the drive not foul him and then keep him off the glass that's a tough ask like there's not that many guys uh, who are you know well suited physically to being able to guard him, and that's why you know I'm excited about him. But I do f- still feel like I've just been waiting and waiting. Like, can we really get uh, the true test of Zion here? You know, coming up in the future. But in terms of the position question, yeah, I knew you were going to raise it because you spent a year telling us Ben Simmons was going to be screwed coming to the NBA because he didn't have a position. <laughs> got into a fist fight with him, and so I just want to know when you're at Cleveland Cavaliers training camp next fall uh-huh. and Cleveland's building their whole roster around Zion. Hold on, excuse Will- me. It could very easily be Washington Wizards training camp and, and the future of, of D.C. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, it's, I can promise you it's not going to go that direction, Andrew. You're going to get whatever the, the first pick where you don't get a blue chipper. What's that, four this year, maybe five? Yeah. That's going to be where Washington <laughs> falls. But um, when you're at Cleveland Cavaliers camp, what are the odds that Zion has to knock you out because you tell him he's not really a point guard, he shouldn't be handling the rock, and they've decided they want to put the ball in his hands? Uh, well, listen, no BS. That's part of what's so incredible to me is I didn't think that he would have the ball handling and just the general comfort level that we saw on the perimeter Tuesday night. And Granted, it's one game, and we may look back two or three months from now and, and say, my God, Kentucky's defense was a disaster, and, and the story could get more complicated. But um, but if that part of his game is real, then yeah, it does get interesting. I mean, when I was talking to somebody a couple months ago about Zion, they said, you're going to have to put him at the five, and if he does go to a team that puts him at the five, he could be really successful, and that creates some unconventional matchups on defense that whatever team ends up with him is going to have to sort of tackle as, as they come. But, uh, but offensively he could be really good that way. 
Now I'm not sure, and and that's part of the fun here is we're all going to kind of find out together. Like maybe he can kind of play the four or the three. Like I I really don't know. I mean, even though like Zion is wider than like Ben Simmons and Giannis like side by side, yeah. Uh, I still think that's sort of how you use him, right? Like you're you're keeping the ball in his hands a lot offensively, defensively. You're playing him more what like a four or five. Yeah, and to and be then, clear, like the the Draymond comparison falls flat because Draymond is actually, I mean, his height is a little bit misleading. He's got like a seven three, seven four wingspan, and just he can protect the rim as well as almost anybody. And that is as a skill that Zion is not going to have. He can he can hit the glass. He he's pretty mobile and will be able to kind of not die in pick and roll situations. But he's not going to be a rim protector. I don't know. I mean, I I think you can get by playing him at defensively at the five. I mean, yeah. If, look, if you if PJ Tucker can play the five defensively at times, I think that you could use Zion in that same situation, no problem. You could be able to switch him you know, regularly, you don't want him to be your main, like traditional five inside. But, you know, if you've got four shooters, you're trying to spread the court, push the tempo, he can do that. I mean, there was that one play where he he blocked a shot against Kentucky, pushes it up in transition, threads a needle on a pass for a layup through three defenders. And it looked very, very Draymond-esque to me. Yeah. And obviously he's got a better handle than Draymond. So, uh, (laughs) and he's also, you know, and he's also like wired to just attack the rim in ways that Draymond just never is, right? Like Draymond's definitely a pass first player. And I, I don't think Zion is, but, you know, Zion's got really nice touch and, and vision and feel uh, with the ball in his hands too. So I love that's this. why I think you're all in right now. I did not expect this coming out of the podcast today. Well, look, man. Like I said, I mean, you're acting like, oh, it's only going to be one game. It could go a different direction. No, <laughs> man. We've been waiting. We've been waiting for the coming of Zion for like three or four years here, and you know now we only have one more year to go. It'd be sure nice if we could go straight from preps to pros for a guy like this. So we could be talking about him this year, you know, who would you rather have, you know, Zion or Doncic? I mean, that'd be a fun conversation, but alas, you know, we have to put that to the side for 12 months. Yeah. Um, So uh, for me, I think I just have my guard up because it seems too good to be true that you could slide him at the five at the next level and have him work defensively while also having all the like mind bending benefits that come with him offensively. Like, I, I don't know. I'm a natural evolution. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> the, the, the idea of towns as the point center, it doesn't really work. Cause towns doesn't have like the, the push the ball up the court stuff and the vision passing wise. Yeah. I mean, Zion does. I think it's the natural next evolution here. I think you need to widen your mind, embrace your imagination. I, I do think that They'll probably start him at like the the point four, yeah. Where you have like a JaVale McGee or Tyson Chandler type center to start games. But if you're going small, like is I mean he's perfectly suited to being that small ball five in like a very Julius Randall type way. And then when your five can push the tempo off of a a defensive rebound uh, and just go, and he can make passes in transition and not turnovers in transition. That's an incredible weapon that we've seen some of the best teams in the league who are trying to play super fast pace uh, have you know put into their arsenal. You know, basically Golden State, New Orleans, and some of these other teams as well. Obviously, LeBron pushes the ball up the court for LA when when he's playing the four and five as well. So, I mean, to me, he's right in line with sort of modern techniques. Uh, he do, he is a, a a brain bender. There's no question about it. Like it's going to take a very creative coach to get the most out of him. But yeah. Uh, Surround him with shooters, play him up positions, and let him go one-on-one. I think good things are going to happen. 
I'm with you, and we will close out. Before we came on this podcast, I called a friend of mine who works with an NBA team, and in part, just strictly out of curiosity, I was looking for more comps for Zion because, like, I had seen Larry Johnson mixed with Sean Kemp. I've been calling him a defensive tackle playing basketball. But this guy I talked to basically said like he kind of hemmed and hawed for about 15 seconds and then here's a direct quote he says there fucking isn't anybody at 285 pounds he's the second heaviest player in the league right now behind Boban he's bringing the ball up the court and going straight to the rim like a freight train most guys don't really do that LeBron does it every now and then but he just goes straight to the rim I don't know how you guard this guy in college. I guess in the NBA, they'll throw length at him. But even then, he may just take guys out on the perimeter. There just isn't anybody like him. And uh, that's why he's so exciting. And it takes a lot for me to acknowledge that Duke... Like, Duke has to be amazingly fun for me to acknowledge that Duke basketball games are actually going to be cool this year. But uh, we should all watch. Not as really, much. man. All they had to do was invite you to one practice, and you were sold. No, I mean, that lifelong Carolina <laughs> fandom went, went out the window with one practice in. No, by. I'm watching for Zion. I don't really care about anyone else down there. But um, can I tell you one of your most unbelievable, uh, you know, techniques and skills that I don't think really a lot of people have your attributes? What? You're amazing at the anonymous name drop. Like most people are like, <laughs> oh yeah. I was talking to Mitch Kupchak the other day, or, oh, yeah, you know, I was talking to a Mike D'Antoni at an exclusive. You're like, I was talking to a guy who works for a team, and this guy says, like, okay, cool, Andrew, thanks for telling well, us. Well, listen, man, I was trying to prepare for the podcast. I wanted to give us at least some some sort of substance here beyond just sitting here gawking at Zion Williamson. and uh, and it. So you had an anonymous person who works for an organization. Yes. We have no idea his role. He is going to gawk at him, and now all of a sudden He's we're more credible. He's in scouting okay. for, for an organization, <laughs> okay? That's all That's all you need to know. He, did, he said, I better be anonymous. But um, anyways. No, we, we get it. No, I love it, though. I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> Moving on here, quickly, we should touch on a pet peeve of yours. Um, Nick says, I heard Golliver on the Locked On podcast the other night taking Kyrie Irving's side concerning the end of the game where Jamal Murray jacked up an uncontested three to try to hit 50. Sharp, I'm looking at you to be the voice of reason here and pull Golliver back over to the right side of the conversation. Full disclosure, I'm a lifelong Nuggets fan and a geography professor, so my opinion of Kyrie has been trending down for some time. After this week, it is scraping the bedrock of the the spherical earth we all inhabit. So, Ben, I'll give you 60 seconds here to make your case against Jamal Murray. Well, first of all, I'm disappointed in your framing here. I mean, obviously, this is not Kyrie Irving's side of the conversation when Kyrie Irving, the entire Celtics team, and Nuggets coach Michael Malone and the Nuggets veterans are all on the side with me on the right side of history saying you can't be going out there disrespecting your opponent, shamelessly jacking up a three-pointer just so you can chase your 51 points, and then walking around the court pretending that you didn't do it. Come on. Jamal Murray knows better. He knows the rules. You can't write this off as some 19-year-old kid who doesn't understand what you're supposed to do in in endgame situations. He just wanted his number. 
and he needed to earn it, and he didn't, and he chased it, and the basketball gods kept that basketball out of the hoop, period. Karma will come back at you, Jamal Murray, if you try to take those shortcuts. And here's my real takeaway. Jamal, you don't need to be doing these things. I picked you as the most improved player because you're going to be an all-star in two years. You're going to have multiple opportunities to get a 50-point game in the future. And look what happened when you made this silly shot. Everybody talked about the three you missed rather than the 48 career-high points that you scored. Why do that to yourself? It's so backwards. Play by the established, unwritten rules. You will be a better person for it. You will understand when Golden State is wiping you off the court in the playoffs by 35 points and Steph's on the bench rather than running up the score against you. You will be glad for that. And that's all I really have to say on this subject. You can say whatever you want, but I know I'm right. (laughs) The establishment knows I'm right. And the young people who are hedonists, who just want to see everybody score all the time with no regard for morals and values, will take the easy take of, oh, you should just try to stop them on the court. Come on, man. Yeah, you know what, man? I agree with you almost entirely. I mean, to Nick's point, Kyrie was obviously acting like a bit of a dork. The best point I heard made on the Kyrie side of this was from a Twitter user named Adam McGee, who said, this whole thing was the most wizard's way possible to react to allowing a guy to have a shot at 50. The Celtics should know, you never go full wizards. And it's true, I could see Bradley Beal and John Wall making a huge deal out of Jamal Murray disrespecting the game in a double-digit win. So not a great look for Kyrie in that respect. Um, But I agree that Jamal By the way, I thought it was a good look for Kyrie. Calling Jamal thirsty was perfect. (laughs) That's exactly the right word. He nailed it. Well, and I I also, part of me did really enjoy throwing the ball 30, 30 rows into the stands and saying, this is your career night. You don't get the ball from your career night the following day. Like I, I part of me loved it um, because it was just whack from, from Jamal Murray. You know, like we can, we don't need to make a big deal out of it. We don't need to question his character and his integrity. It just, you know, it's first of all, it's annoying that the whole night was overshadowed by his lame decision to shoot it at the end. And if he had made it, it would have been even worse because it would have been 51 with an asterisk instead of just dropping 48 and beating one of the best teams in the league basically by himself taking over the fourth quarter. Like, that should be cool enough. And instead, we had this, like, 24-hour debate about Jamal Murray and and that shot. And it was the whole thing was just stupid. And people— Yeah, look, it was annoying and stupid, but also appropriate. He made his bet on this one. And here's the thing. I get where he's coming from because he was in front of his home crowd. He had multiple chances late to try to get it, and he just barely couldn't get it. Like, he missed a reverse layup, easily could have gotten a foul call on that one, and he didn't. Yeah. That could have given him 50. We would have avoided all of this. So he was like frustrated and absolutely caught up in the moment, but he still knew better. And that's why he has to take this flack. And that's why his own coach didn't get his back. And kudos to Michael Malone. (laughs) Your star player, one of your stars, gets 48, and you're basically scolding him after the game. I love it. Way to do it for all NBA coaches, Michael Malone. You probably didn't get enough credit for what you said because everyone was so distracted with Kyrie Irving, (laughs) but you nailed it. Well, and that's the most telling point of all. People within the league, whether it's other player, I mean, a lot of guys seem to be on Kyrie's side in all of this, and uh, I think that should sort of be the controlling point at the end of these debates. I mean, people on Twitter are so pro-player these days that, like, the dominant take is 
Jamal Murray can do whatever he wants and the defense should stop him. And it's like, okay, fine. But like, I don't understand why we can't just admit that it, it was pretty lame on his part. And yeah, no doubt. I want to see the people, the Twitter voice that you just uh, mocked. And I think I did a similar mocking earlier. I want everyone who feels offended by us mocking you to look in the mirror are you doing it for the retweets or do you really <laughs> believe these things? I'm serious, Andrew. There's people out there who are just putting these takes out there solely for the retweets. They don't really believe yeah. it. Yeah. And it, I don't, don't know. be as thirsty it, it as Jamal me. Murray. All right. Take a look in the mirror and, you know. Yeah, no doubt. There's a lot of secondary thirst out there, right? It's like thirst runoff, you know? They want. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yes. And at some point, we're going to need to talk about Jamal Murray's celebrations because, again, he's too good of a player to have celebrations this lame. The licking his fingers thing. We talked about this over the summer. It's just not acceptable. Um, we want we want better for you, Jamal Murray. Ben and I criticize because we care. But Yeah, and it, pain, it pains me, by the way. Have you ever heard me agree with Kyrie Irving on anything, Andrew, <laughs> in the entire history of this podcast? Have I ever defended Kyrie Irving under basically any scenario? I can't remember that I've ever done that. That's how you know he really crossed the line. And I hopefully he'll come back in line here going forward because if you play with that stuff, you know, you if you want to just like run straight through the gray area uh, and just make these crazy violations, it will come back to bite you because everybody else is watching and they'll put it on you. And I, and I can't wait to see the next game between these two teams, by the way. I, Kyrie's putting up 35 shots. Yeah, Kyrie's putting up 35 and still probably not going to guard anybody. But anyways... That's a good place to stop, and uh, we will pick things up next week. Enjoy part two of the episode, which again was recorded Sunday night. And Ben, I will talk to you soon. We've got an ad and then a lot more to talk about on this podcast. Sounds great. Let's do it. Today's episode of Open Floor is brought to you by Lightstream. If you're like most of us, you have a balance on your credit cards and a higher interest rate than you would like. Why not turn those balances into one monthly payment at a lower fixed interest rate and start saving money? Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 6.14% APR with auto pay. Stop right there, Andrew. You always love hogging the copy for Lightstream. I can tell how excited you get. (laughs) Let me get a word in edgewise here because Lightstream is a very logical company. They'll get you a loan between $5,000 all the way up to $100,000 that you put towards your high interest credit card debt. That will allow you to get it at a lower APR, like you mentioned, and save you money uh, over the course of, of your payments. Now, Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve that great interest rate and no fees. Plus, they're a division of SunTrust Bank, the trustworthy SunTrust Bank, one of the nation's largest financial institutions, so you have complete peace of mind throughout your Lightstream experience. That's right. And our listeners can save even more with an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash open floor. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash open floor, where you will be subject to credit approval and the rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount, terms and conditions apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash open floor for more information lightstream.com slash open floor it's just that easy lightstream.com slash open floor all right and on that note let's get into it ben 
Tony says, if you guys could give one player guaranteed full health for the rest of the season, who would it be? And this is a tough one. This is is giving us a lot of power, number one. And we could take this a lot of different directions. So I'm curious, do you have any initial thoughts here? I do. I mean, there's a Scott Travis song on his new album that talks about, you know, don't try to be God. Um, (laughs) I I feel like... Hold on. I think you legitimately listen to Travis Scott at this point. You mention him almost every episode. He's pretty cool right now, Andrew. I can tell you the the streets like Travis Scott. He's got some real bangers on that album. I'm not going to lie. I should probably stop calling him Scott Travis uh, sarcastically, but um, I guess my first intuition is, you know, this is kind of like playing God. Like you said, it's giving us a lot of power. What did you think? Who's the first name that that popped to your mind? Okay. So uh, we have a, a number of players that we should address, but for me, the answer here is Kyrie Irving because Ooh. I worry about his health. I think everyone should be more concerned than we are at this point. Um, his body did not look great through the first two weeks of the season, started to look better now, but I think he I think the the Celtics by the time we get to March and April are going to be the only credible threat to the Warriors and the only way the Celtics have any chance of pushing the Warriors at all is if Kyrie is healthy and so um for the sake of this season and really for the sake of the next couple Celtics seasons I, I like it will be so much more fun if Kyrie is a healthy wild card at the center of all this rather than kind of like a shell of himself who we can all kind of quietly bet against because of the injuries. And so um, I want him healthy. Let me ask you this. Doesn't it get a little bit more complicated next summer if he's not healthy this year? Like isn't one benefit of giving Kyrie perfect health this year is that hopefully he just signs with Boston and kind of keeps that thing going? Like if he plays 60 games, the knee starts to bug him a little bit, and maybe he's only like a B-minus in the playoffs. I mean, doesn't it start to get a little weird there with the Celtics in terms of like how do you build this franchise and you know do you give him that big-time contract and, and all those kinds of questions? And I don't necessarily want you know their momentum spoiled by that. You know what I mean? Yeah, no question. And it's funny because after Kyrie came out and sort of tri- – He did his best to short-circuit any kind of 2019 free agency speculation. And so, you know, first of all, he did like five different interviews where he was like, I really like it in Boston. I mean, there's not a whole lot to talk about. And then he finally came out and just flat out said, I'm coming back to Boston. And yet, since then, in in the weeks that have followed, there have still been murmurs about his potential availability on the open market next summer. And well, I yeah, think... I mean, isn't this guy fake news Irving? I mean, isn't he on like Jimmy <laughs> Butler level credibility in terms of like his going back and forth? I mean, does he have a pretty loosey goosey, uh, you know, approach to truth and, and facts at this point? Should we really take him at no, face value? No, I'm not going to call him fake news Kyrie. I, I believe in Kyrie. What I would say, though, is I think if you're making the case that Kyrie is going to be available, you it's certainly plausible that he could miss 20 or 25 games and give the Celtics a little bit of pause before they commit 170 million to him or whatever the number is going to be. It, it would Some of it's going to depend on whether he makes an all NBA team, but I think, or actually, I don't even know if he's eligible for the Supermax in Boston, but either way, it's going to be a lot of money. And if the Celtics lowball him at all, 
then the decision gets a lot more interesting for Kyrie and he could absolutely hit the free agency market. And so I, that's not why I want him healthy, but that is a very important sort of piece of this whole conversation. Okay. So let's, I mean, let's just boil this down though. Do you trust him when he says I'm going to be in Boston? Do you think he firmly believes that? And he means that because yeah, Okay, did you trust him when he was talking about the the shape of the globe? So I mean, right, he was so, taking a he was taking a direct shot at our open floor globe listeners by trying to say the Earth was flat, right? Like he was basically trying to call us the open floor pancake. That's not how it works. And so when he's going to dance around those questions and prolong it for two years and all of that, I have real questions. I mean, I saw him. He, he said it with a straight face, but he said the other stuff with a straight face too. Here's the thing with Kyrie. He believes it 100% whenever he says it, okay? In Kyrie's mind, when he told the Celtics fans, I plan to be back here next summer, that wasn't him, like, telling some kind of white lie or trying to sell it or whatever. It's not, he's not playing games here. Look, this sounds like a grease pig trying to explain another grease pig. So you're going to say <laughs> he, he's going to just naturally change his opinion down the road and he doesn't have to be held accountable for what he said? Is, is that what you're insinuating? I think that's true, and I, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I would also say Kyrie has never officially come out and said that the earth is round. He... Deep down, probably still believes the earth is flat, but he's very carefully worded a a handful of apologies to try and move on, which is a smart play from him in general. Um, But bottom line is Kyrie's not a liar. He's not like if if we're talking about guys in the NBA who will just straight up lie to your face, I would say like Chris Paul and LeBron. (laughs) There are a couple other guys who are just liars. Kyrie believes what he's saying. Okay, fair enough. That's actually a really good pick. I mean, there are some obvious ones. I mean, I think Kawhi Leonard is an obvious one too, right? I mean, it would yeah. be awful nice if he just played every night as it is and, and giving him perfect health would actually, you know, allow that to happen because, uh, you know, he gives himself sort of sabbaticals in the middle of road trips and, you know, just gives himself a lot of time off. I mean, it's it's pretty friendly how he's treating himself at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'd be nice to see him, you know, make a real run at the MVP award and, and play a lot of games. If it's not giving him perfect health though, this might be a little too easy. I I really want to guarantee Steph Curry perfect health because he has been so fun this season. Basically, everybody is on board now. Like the the anti Warriors resentment that I think was peaking last year, it does seem to have subsided a little bit. And I think I give Steph a lot of credit for that because he's awfully hard to root against, and he does give them this sort of invulnerability where it's like. Why even try to hate on the Warriors when Steph's going off for 50? Just, you know, like at least enjoy it and watch it happen. And they're capable of so many historical things if he plays 80 games this season, right? They're like 9-1 and one as we're talking right now. Uh, but you look ahead, you know, going forward, I mean, they could, you know, basically challenge every record that's out there in terms of offensive efficiency, three-point shooting, wins, point differential, you name it. But Steph has to be healthy for that stuff. And I'm always looking for them to make a bigger exclamation point than they've even made to date. Yeah. You know, and you've mentioned something like 16-0 and 0 in the postseason. I mean, imagine if this team won 75 games and went 16-0, and 0, you know, and Steph gets his first finals MVP. Aren't we now saying Steph versus Magic, who's the best point guard in NBA history? Like, wouldn't that be the conversation after, you know, that, that type of season? So that would be a lot better than what we saw in golden states last regular season where Steph misses time and, you know, things get, uh, you know, a lot choppier and less interesting. 
uh, past that. No, it's uh, a really good point. I want to stick with that for a second um, because I do. I feel guilty after hearing you lay out the case. I do feel like I've betrayed Steph a little bit. I'm supposed to be the Curry believer on yeah, this podcast. No, I, I outflanked you. We have this whole thing where we try to outflank each other. It, it's getting a little awkward, but go ahead. Yeah, well, what I'm wondering is where do you think Steph Curry ends up all time as we talk about the greatest players to ever play in the NBA? Tough to say because he's got a lot of really high-level basketball left, and they, mm-hmm. there's not really been a challenger emerging. So if you told me Kevin Durant re-signed for four years this summer, I would say we're halfway through Golden State's dynasty, right? Like yeah. This could go on for a long way. And you know, ultimately, I think if Steph wants to win arguments over guys like Magic, it's going to take five rings you know yeah six rings like it's gonna take that level of like winning but i think he he could be you know right there in that conversation if steph finished as a top seven player in nba history uh it wouldn't surprise me and considering the kind of late bloomer that he was in terms of being a truly elite guy he did not come into the the, his nba career as an all-star type player he really had to gradually build up to that yep that would be a sensational place to put him and i'm sure there's going to be people maybe even you who think he could be higher than that, who think he's on track to be top five. You know what's funny? And we're going to just bounce all over the place here. When you talk about the gradual ascent from Steph, I was talking to a scout about that and, and why it seems like the the point guards we need in the NBA are not generally highly ranked in high school. Like you, you look at the best amateur point guards, whether it's high school or college, and a lot of them end up looking like Colin Sexton, and it takes guys like uh, Steph Curry longer to kind of emerge and get comfortable in the NBA. And I think the same was true with Steve Nash. We might see the same thing happen with Trey Young, where it takes a couple years before he really kind of asserts himself at an all-star level and is consistently there night to night. Um, and so that's just an interesting thing to watch because – Steph's skill set is clearly like the most valuable thing you can have in the NBA and the most valuable asset any team can try and sort of scout for. Um, But it does seem to take those guys a little bit longer to develop. Um, There's, there's no question. I think a lot of the scouts, like, you know, the, the online, like, you know, blogging type scouts, a lot of times they fall in love with the guys who I kind of call, you know, puberty ball guys, you know, the yeah. guys who are just like bigger and stronger, like the Tyreek Evanses of the world, right? The Shabazz Muhammad's of the world. And, and even R.J. Everybody... Barrett at Duke, like R.J. Barrett is great at at 18 years old, but I don't know how you can look at his game and see him as like a top five, top 10 guy when he's 25 or 26. You've probably oh, look, not I... seen anything from R.J. Barrett, but whatever. And here's the thing. I didn't see Steph Curry coming either, but I think ultimately that is the magic of Steph Curry, right? Like this just shooting star mid-career boom explodes on the face of the NBA and changes it forever. And like when you look at the style of play during this era, you know, LeBron is going to have an extended run as like the best basketball player in the league, right? But when Mm -hmm. we're looking back on this era, you know, you mentioned earlier, like the the 90s, you know, grind and kind of pound era, you know, maybe viewed as an anomaly, but like, even what Steph has done, it's not comparable to like seven seconds or less. Like he has absolutely taken it to a different galaxy and he's forced everybody to do it. Like say what you want about the incredible play of Steve Nash. 
he wasn't so good that basically everybody else in the league had to try to copy them, right? Like, it it just didn't play out that way. Uh, You were still able to win by playing a different style, to go the Spurs route, or maybe to to just sprinkle elements of what the Suns were doing uh, into what you were trying to do. And when you're looking at how this NBA is being played this season, basketball uh, across the league, it's Curry-influenced, there's no question about it. And I do think that... You know, his his quick rise in the middle of his career and then how long he's able to sustain his greatness as they're winning, you know, year after year after year yeah. is going to be a very compelling case when you're talking about like, you know, the the greatest players of all time. You know, it, it's well, not going to be it's not going to be a two decade run of dominance like LeBron, but it's going to have its own very unique uh, position in that conversation. Yeah. And as far as his development is concerned, I think what I'm trying to say is that I don't know if it's as magical as it may have seemed um, or or may seem in retrospect necessarily because I think that might just be a trajectory that becomes more normal for that type of point guard over the next 10, 15, 20 years just because I think it it takes a little longer for guys with that skill set to get comfortable Granted, Steph has been doing it on like a Jordan level and has completely yeah. revolutionized the sport. So that's no, that, a different conversation. And no, and let's underscore that fact too, because people spent the last twenty years after Mike trying to mimic Mike, right? People yeah. are going to be spending the next twenty years trying to mimic Steph. You've already got a whole generation of them: Jamal Murray, Trey Young. The list is going to go on. There's going to be a lot more point guards with the ball in their hands trying to play uh, stuff like basketball. You could even say Damian Lillard has kind of come into that uh, sure. that uh, category as well with his his uh, reliance upon the off the dribble three kind of increasing here. You know, over the last few years as well. Um, but the question I ask you is: There going to be another Steph Curry? You know, or is he going no. to be one of these guys where like there's imitators and that just really reinforces his importance as an all time great? Because here's 15 years of guys who are trying to be here. You know, here's Harold Miner. Here's Kobe Bryant. You know, here's LeBron <laughs> wearing 23. I'm not sure every kid in the next generation is going to wear 30 like Steph does, but I wouldn't be surprised if a lot more did. Yeah. Well, and it's idiotic for me to sit here and say there's not going to be another Steph Curry. I mean, look, we're going to be doing this for another 50 years. Um, doing the, the Open Four podcast, me and you, for the next 50 years. Um, but I, So someone will sh- will pop up who is even more mind-blowing in certain ways. Um, but Steph is definitely, to me, I do think that we're going to remember him in a Jordan-LeBron context. And for some reason, we haven't talked about him that way as it's all happened and as all this has unfolded. And, and part of that is probably because the, the Warriors as a team have been just as mind-blowing but my question for you and granted all of this is contingent on good health so you're right to assign him the injury immunity that we've been uh granted here or the powers that we've been given but in a historical context is he better off winning a title with Durant this year and then winning a title after Durant leaves this summer or winning the next three titles with Durant? What do you think? I think winning the next three titles with Durant because I do think he gets the Duncan-like credit for all of them. You know, it's like, hey, the system was built around me and I'm elevating everybody. I hear what you're saying because then he could make the argument, I won before Durant, I won with Durant, I won after Durant. Um, But I, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, 
all rings count the same. I know See, not I everybody know. This is views a, this that is differently. The issue. It's a fundamental disconnect that we have where I, I think, you know, there's no question that winning, if he won the next three titles, would that be a total of six rings? Uh, correct. He's got okay. three already. All of this is blurred together for me. But okay, so six rings is going to be very difficult to argue with. Um, and and will land him somewhere in the top ten, probably at certainly the top fifteen. Um, but even if that happens, there are going to be people the same way I look at Tim Duncan and say, I don't know if you put Kevin Garnett in that Spurs system, I think he gets four or five rings too. And um, and I think that well, people... you'd, be, you'd be wrong about that, and people would be wrong to discount Steph. I, mean, I know, it's not complicated. and I say that Tim Duncan shit, knowing that I'm probably wrong. It's just how I feel in my gut. I, but I understand intellectually that Tim Duncan was great in a lot of different ways. I just, as someone who has loved every minute of the Curry experience, I don't want him to have to deal with people kind of second guessing his greatness. And I think if he won with Durant this year and then had Durant leave this summer and had the whole world right off the end of the Warriors and then came back and averaged 30 a game and won the title next year, there's not shit you could say about Steph Curry. And it would be the coolest... I mean, it would be a a run of dominance that, for one thing, LeBron has never come close to sniffing. And I think at that point, Steph is like consensus... We're watching a top five player of all time, and I I don't know anybody I don't know how anyone would argue with it. I do think that if Steph winds up doing what you're laying out, and it's possible if they keep the band together, they can win the next three titles. It's possible. There will be a lot of rewriting going on because I think what would happen is everyone would go back to like 2015 and they'd start to say, you know, LeBron was considered the best individual player, but it was no longer his league. And yes, he won the 2016 title, but really the Warriors were the predominant force. They were built around Steph. Uh, You know, Kevin came along and, and took them to a different level, but there would start to be some real questions about, okay, what was the LeBron era, right? Like, as right now, <laughs> totally. I think most people think the LeBron era is kind of still going, right? Because he's viewed as the consensus best player. I think that would start to get rewritten. I also think if Steph does wind up getting into this, like, five, six title conversation, Mike fans like myself would really stand to benefit because they would look and say, you know, look at the course of Jordan's career. Once he reached his prime, there was no one else who was viewed as a peer who was winning more often than him, you know, Hakeem only got his titles because Jordan went to go play baseball down in Birmingham. Like Barkley never won anything. Like the gap between Jordan and his peers was wide. And now you're saying one of LeBron's peers, you know, a guy who spent a big chunk of his prime overlapping with a big chunk of the other guy's prime, um, LeBron head to head, you know, just got outpointed in a lot of different situations. And when you're kind of breaking down this GOAT conversation, I think that's a big, you know, the more success that Steph Curry has, the better MJ stands are feeling. That's a great point. And um, the only other thing, if if we do end up rewriting history or revisiting history at some point a couple years from now, I would add that as the 2016 finals happened, I was rooting for the Cavs. I picked the Cavs to win that series because I thought LeBron was going to go down as a top three player ever, and that had to happen for for LeBron to be remembered that way. And I loved watching the way it played out. However, 
that series, I I mean, uh oh, I, I think I can already, <laughs> I think I can already sense what you're saying. You think Kiki Vandeweghe should be Finals MVP, don't you? For I think so. Finals. I a little part of me will always wonder because look. The game that Draymond were, was suspended for was game four of that series. And you and I, I, you were in Cleveland, right? I was. Yeah. So you and I were both in the building and nothing seemed wrong with the play that Draymond was ultimately suspended for. And it was only after the internet zapruded that play to death that Draymond became public enemy number one on the internet and suddenly he had to be suspended because he had he had crossed the line earlier in the playoffs and gotten away with it and the NBA had to take action and I understand why it all happened but it wasn't like that was a big deal in the moment um, in the building and I really do think that if we look back it was like the internet got Draymond Green suspended for that series and um or for game five anyways and helped turn the series around and it's just it's kind of crazy to me because that that's completely altered like the course of history there's no question I mean it was pretty wild I remember kind of being chained to my keyboard for the 48 hours as they were like weighing that decision and I had like already mentally prepared like takes for Draymond's not suspended. Draymond gets a game. Uh, and in my head, I was like, they're not really going to do this. Like, this is, you know, th- right? this this would be a lot if they did this. Like, Golden State's kind of the cash cow at that point. Like, they had just been, you know, it's the, the big 73-win season. Are they really going to inject themselves into this? And then what I never saw coming was, like, LeBron and, and the sources coming back the other way and saying, you know, Draymond really should have been suspended for two games. Like, that was so bad. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like, I had mentally prepared, like, m- what I was going to write in all of the eventualities, and they came up with an eventuality that I had not even considered. Yeah, well, and the the broader trajectory of that whole series was so crazy that it seems beside the point to focus on that one suspension. And it, it's more fun to talk about like the greatest comeback in the history of the NBA finals and all of that's fine. But the one suspension was complete bullshit. And as long as we could all agree on that and that the entire series turned on a fluke of like, that was the vine still existed, I believe during that series. And like the vine got Draymond green suspended and it will always kind of baffle me. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. It was still game seven was so fun. I'm not even mad about yeah, it, which is I'm the not, amazing I'm part. I'm not either. Like, it's just it's yeah. it's one of those things. Anyways, we've gotten way off course with the injury question. I think it's fair to say that if we can't grant Steph immunity from injuries and can't grant Kyrie immunity from injuries, those should, those are our top two choices. We would also have to throw uh, Anthony Davis and Joel Embiid into the mix. Obviously, if 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 you could pick one career to uh use these powers for it would be Embiid but I like Embiid staying healthy this season probably won't change anything so that's why he's not the choice for me you know just out of respect to Oklahoma City and their fan base I put Russ on this one too because it would get dark like their season would really take a turn if Russ were ever to to miss time I'm not sure what their ceiling is as an organization you know this year in terms of like are they going to really make playoff noise but at least he, he gives you something to root for night in, night out. He's had a couple of really nice games here recently. Yeah. Um, and, 
I just feel bad. Like those Thunder fans, you know, at the start of the games, they stand up for like until they scored their first basket. Like if Westbrook's not out there, you're going to be standing a long time, a lot of <laughs> nights <laughs> waiting for points. You know, it's like, please, Schroeder, don't go one for eight in the first four minutes. We need a basket. Yeah, I hear you on that, actually. I mean, I don't really care about the Thunder because I think they're depressing even with Russ, but it's true that it would get 10 times worse without Westbrook out there. So, um, for now, though, let's move to another Western Conference point guard because Jake said, I haven't been keeping a close eye on Damian Lillard, but when I tuned in to watch the whole Lakers-Blazers game this past weekend, I was slightly in shock of how good he actually is. I've always liked Lillard, but the maturity and poise he plays with now makes him look like a certified top 10 player in the league Am I missing something? Am I being too kind here? Was it just one good game? Ben, I know you hate these in a vacuum or switch players scenarios, but could you imagine if you swapped Kyrie and Lillard on the Celtics? I think we've actually talked through that one before in regarding the top 100. I mean, I'm I'm pretty firmly convinced that the Celtics would be better with Lillard. I don't mm-hmm. know how you feel. I mean, their problems with shot distribution would probably become you know, even starker because I think Lillard has become accustomed to a very clear alpha role and everything working around him. So maybe you're not quite as getting as much from Tatum. Maybe Hayward is just, you know, kind of de-emphasized in that situation. But look, Lillard, the knocks on him at this point of his career are largely attributable to his teammates, right? They get swept and everybody says, oh, look, he couldn't handle being doubled. Well, it's like, you wouldn't be able to handle getting doubled either if Al Farouk Aminu and Harkless are the, <laughs> your outlet guys, right? Like you would, you would get bottled up by the Pelicans' defense just the same. And um, I do think he's never really played throughout his entire career, except you know going way back to like the pre Wesley Matthews Achilles injury. Yeah, he's never really played with a solid five starting, you know, starting five group where like everybody's a threat and they've got balance and they can beat you from all these different directions and so uh you know he's a borderline top 10 guy I think what we've really seen here early in this season especially with the Jimmy Butler situation is you know Jimmy in a vacuum in theory might be a better two-way player Uh, it might be better uh, as an idea than Lillard but there's no question Lillard is more valuable than Jimmy Butler based on his consistency of his personality, his leadership intangibles, and all of those things. And look, he probably looks a little bit better right now than he's looked at other times over the last couple of years. You know, his t- his teams tend to have swoons and and uh, you know long streaks. They're a little bit up and down. Sometimes you know they look a lot worse than they are when the three pointers are going down. They're probably a little bit three uh, two three point dependent. Yep. Um, but you know what you're getting from him. He's enjoyed really strong health throughout his career, and he's probably still a little bit underrated and you know for Jake to put him in the top 10 class uh you know we should be mentioning that uh, more often than we do and I'm speaking not just you and me but like you know basketball writers and and thinkers as a whole because he does check a lot of those boxes that frankly a lot of other superstar guys just are basically not checking anymore yeah shout out to the basketball thinkers out there you know um I agree here's the thing with Dame I love what he does in the regular season. He is unquestionably better than ever. It's really cool the way he gets like 5 to 10% better year after year after year. I think he, 
a lot of guys in his position would just kind of get complacent, and we've seen that in a number of different contexts across the league. But Lillard is steadily improving. You know, like Russell Westbrook, he's had weaknesses that he hasn't really addressed because he's like the version of his game that we've seen for the last five years is great on its own. And so we don't necessarily see him improve the way we see Lillard kind of refine things a little bit year after year. And so I love him for that. He's also just a cool person. And I, like I've, I've really liked like the character that he's been um, as part of like the larger NBA ecosystem over the last five or six years. And I say all that with a little bit of a heavy heart because I still don't totally trust him in the playoffs. And I understand that he gets doubled and he hasn't had as much help as other guys have had. But he's also just a little bit smaller as a guard um, than some of the than someone like Kyrie, for instance. And so I think that works against him in like high leverage situations where teams can throw bigger guys on him, and we just haven't seen him be very effective. And so I worry about getting too high. I think you're right that he's in that like eight to thirteen range in the NBA. And he's yeah. We we've talked about that shelf. There's like the eight guys who are very very clearly like studs, right? Yeah. But then there's a lot of like okay, Paul George or Jimmy Butler. Like that's where the conversation starts to kick in, right? And it's like, you know, if I'm a Dame Stan, I'm saying he's more reliable than those guys. You can build a team more easily around him. If he had a good team, he could be the number one option on a contender. Like I'd be making those kinds of arguments, right? Yep. No, I, I agree with you. I, I don't want to come off as a, as a Dame hater. I just think if you put him in Boston, the Celtics probably win 65 games, but I would trust the Celtics in the finals more with Kyrie Irving than with Damian Lillard. Interesting. Um, one other thing you're mentioning on his continual improvements, again, it's kind of a Steph Light situation, right? Like, look how much progress Steph made as a defender as he uh, got older, got smarter, and was surrounded with better talent. Lillard has made, like, you know, progress defensively. He probably hasn't gotten quite the same level of credit for it because team wise, um, you know, they don't have a Draymond, you know, and they're yeah. just not that lockdown squad. Um, but I do wonder if you're going to do that, you know, flop test again, you flop him in for Steph, like does his defense now no longer be viewed as such a major knock? Uh, because I think Steph has really escaped that knock, right? Like he, he faced the same thing for the first half of his career and he's worked his way through and, and turned himself into an above average defender at his position. Um, I'm not sure Lillard's all the way there, but I do sometimes wonder perception wise, if he was playing with elite defenders behind him whether he would be viewed better than he is currently. Yeah, it is. That's a good question. Um, the Another question for you before we move on. Do you see him in Portland long-term? And I know this is kind of a loaded question, but given your Portland roots and how many Blazers no, fans... No, it's a loaded question... <laughs> It's a loaded question because you're trying to put him on the Lakers. You've been trying to put him on the Lakers for three or four months can, now. No, it's, can I tell it's you something? It's shameless. It's not, I mean, it's not loaded because of me. I'm from Portland. It's loaded because you're trying to blow the Blazers up. I don't care where Damian Lillard plays. It's not me trying to put him on the Lakers. It's LeBron oh, trying to put him on the Lakers. I heard really? this in September. It's it, This is like a... A loud rumor in NBA circles. Oh, I see. Rich, Rich, Rich. Paul texted you. He's got the master plan. He's 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 hand <laughs> hand delivering it to you and saying, "Hey, go out there on the open floor podcast and turn this Yo, into a thing." Is that what he's doing? I have loved these Lillard Blazers teams for years now. Okay, I'm fine if he wants to stay in Portland for the rest of his career. I just 
I wonder about it. And I do think that if you're a Lillard believer, at some point it does become like, yeah, look, he's never had guys who he could pass to out of a double team, and so he's easier to guard in big games. And that's a, a fair argument that could be true, and I would love to see him on a team with another guy who can kind of demand attention on defense or from the defense. And it would be interesting to see. I think, you know, Lillard off ball next to LeBron could be awesome. Um, So it's something to think about. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's weird that uh, these rumors are kind of popping up when they're off to a fairly good start and they're looking much more stable than the Lakers are. You know, yeah. it's like, what, what exactly does he have to gain from going there? I kind of get it because at some point when guys reach the stage and they can't break through the first round of the playoffs, it's like, okay, aren't you going to get sick of that? I do think Portland is not for everybody and it's definitely not for every NBA player and it's definitely not for any NBA superstar. But it is for some. You know, there's been guys who really loved it. Jerome Kersey, uh, Terry Porter. I mean, there's been some guys, you know, Kevin Duckworth, who really became like just all out, like fabric of the community type guys. Yep. And I think with Lillard, it's sort of the same thing where he's got a really good life. You know, there are worse things to do than go play in front of a, a packed building every single night, have everybody buying your jerseys, the whole organization's built around you, uh, guys that you like wind up getting, you know, signed and re-signed, and guys you don't wind up going out, right? Yep. Uh, so on a day-to-day basis, I think that there's probably more, uh, Portland has more to offer to a guy like Lillard than most people on the outside would think. Now, will that be enough to keep him happy forever? Um, Maybe not. Will that be enough to keep him happy if this ownership situation after Paul Allen's passing winds up, you know, they they start to skimp a little bit and they make some, you know, financially oriented moves and, you know, they're not really trying to put a contender around him. You know, I could see the frustration starting to mount there a little bit. But uh, at this point, I think, uh, you know, guys like you trying to blow the Blazers up are, are doing too much. <laughs> well, it's partly I am curious because there just aren't many guards you can slide next to LeBron and expect it to work out. But Lillard might be one of them. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it, it's curious how eager you are to talk about Lillard on the Lakers, but you don't want to talk about Brad Beal on the Lakers. Like, oh, now what, what, what if the shoe's on the other foot and we're just trying to put Bradley Beal next to LeBron? I mean, you know, he, he, theoretically, uh, you know, secondary scores, got some what, Kyrie man? qualities on offense and then defensively, you know, if he has a reason to play hard, maybe he can lock up a little bit too on that end. Why aren't we talking about this? That is a great segue into my final thought on Lillard Lakers rumors is I don't know if Portland, I, I mean, Lonzo has been so shaky early on that I don't know if the idea of trading Lonzo for Lillard it like does it. And uh, even if you throw in Lonzo and Kuzma and Hart, and, like, I can promise you Neil O'Shea would hang the phone. Yeah, up if right. That's your I offer. mean, sorry. And then you'd have to throw in Ingram also. And then I don't know what you turn around and, and offer New Orleans for Anthony Davis. So like, the the Lakers fan fiction is is starting to get a little tough. Um, and then to answer your question though. If the Lakers turned around and offered uh, Josh Hart and Brandon Ingram for Bradley Beal, I would say yes on behalf of the Wizards there because I think it's it's getting to be that time. And granted, we're recording this early on a Sunday night, so I don't know what's going to happen to the Wizards, but 
Um, I would say yes. Very, very interesting. I think that the Lakers would not have to pay that much for Beal. Okay. Well, yeah, that's probably true too. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if you want to take all their good young prospects for <laughs> your mediocre yeah. two guard who's not a very good leader and watching the team fall apart around him, then sure, go for well, it. Sounds fantastic. Beal has benefited a lot from John Wall's descent into madness. It sort of overshadowed an underwhelming like 12 months from Bradley Beal. Um, but. Yeah, I, I, I'm i with you that the Lakers are probably not going to choose a Bradley Beal trade over an Anthony Davis trade, uh, but I can dream. I would love to root for Josh Hart back in his hometown. Moving on, Jeremy says, you guys roasted Houston for the roster last year, but they took a few gambles that didn't pay off this year. So what gives? Isn't all of this a gamble? Maury is GM of the year last season, but a, a loser this year. How much of this is really just a roll of the dice? Do you have any thoughts there, Ben? I mean, it shouldn't be boom or bust if you have two top 10 guys on your roster, right? Yeah. Like, doesn't that make it considerably easier? Um, now, it makes it harder to find talent sometimes because you're paying those guys so much money. And the big difference between last year and this year is how much you had to pay Chris. I mean, that's a sizable difference and it totally changed their formula. And that's the difference between having Ariza and not having Ariza. And there's not a ton that a guy like Maury can do about that. Um, but we can't just give them a pass for a one in five start. I mean, come on, Jeremy, like this is a team that's in the Western conference finals, you know, 12 minutes away from the finals, you know, almost beating a historic team. And now they're in shambles, and, and Mike D'Antoni is admitting that he's worried um, in, a, in a pretty interesting interview with Zach Lowe on his podcast, and rightfully so. I mean, he should be worried because their defensive identity just hasn't been the same, and the consistency from the stars has yet to display itself. Now, is this going to be the low point of their season? I would guess so. Yeah. You know, I think that they're going to be trending upward. They're probably going to be a top-four team in the Western Conference. I'm not ready to like say that. You know, Daryl Morey's an idiot, and certainly he's not under any you know serious like questions about his job or anything like that. But we can also look at their roster and say they don't have that much help for their top two guys, and not nearly as much as they had uh, last year. Yeah, there. I mean, that's inarguable. And I think what the role of the dice is, and and look, as far as our criticism of the Rockets, I don't know if we're necessarily criticizing Morey because he didn't have many better alternatives than what he did this past summer. I mean, obviously anyone could point out that Melo was a massive risk, but there just weren't many other options for the Rockets either. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have rolled the dice on Melo, but it is what it is. Um, and, and look, stars get their buddies paid. I mean, that's part of it too, right? Yeah. Like if Chris Paul is your guy and he's, he goes back a decade with Mello and he says we can get Mello on a minimum should we do this if you're the GM and you're concerned at all about your team chemistry and keeping everybody aligned and wanting to make sure the locker room dynamic is healthy and it, besides all of the basketball arguments you could make to you know take a shot on Mello that's a pretty hard thing to say no to do you want to be the guy who stands in between Carmelo and Chris Paul good luck with that yeah and, and says no, we're going to bet the season on James Ennis. Like, I don't know, man. It's tough. Um, no, I've got this covered. Mike D'Antoni's convinced that, uh, you know, P.J. Tucker is a top 15 player, so why don't we need yeah, Mello, like, you know? So what I would say, though, to Jeremy, I think the part of this that's a complete roll of the dice 
is the way the timelines work in re- with regard to who gets paid and when. And I think that that's a case where the Rockets got screwed by the most recent CBA, which also ultimately gave them the option of paying James Harden an additional $200 million and then paying Chris Paul what's essentially its own Supermax money. Um, and so compare that to the Warriors who have had everything break exactly right over the last eight years. And that part is really out of a GM's control and uh, and would be really frustrating and kind of maddening because you can't plan for some of this. And it's it's worked against Houston and it has worked in Golden State's favor every step of the way. It's starting to yeah. get complicated now, but we're now like four titles in or three titles. Yeah, but I think one thing too with the Supermax is like, look, that was a gamble for sure. And so far it was a pretty good gamble. Like you've got Harden who is, you know, a top five, six talent in the league, locked up for the rest of his prime. Is he going to be a guy who's a top two player every year, guaranteed to put you into the conference finals? He hasn't had that level of consistency during his career, right? Yeah. But would you rather have Harden on a Supermax or virtually any other guy besides Steph Curry who's been paid a Supermax? I would take Harden. I'd rather have Harden on a Supermax than Russ. I mean, don't even mention John Wall's name in this conversation. There's been some other really big Supermax mistakes too. And, you know, you've pointed out that sometimes the Supermax can have kind of a crippling effect on a team's ability to build Yeah. If, if if the guy they invest in isn't the right guy. And what you're seeing in Houston is it can have a crippling effect on you building, even if it is the right guy. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it, and the luck part comes down to having having some flexibility at the right time. And uh, and Houston hasn't really ha- didn't have that this summer when they they were closest to the Warriors coming out of those playoffs, and then they just had their hands tied and and had to lose Ariza and had to pay Capella and had to pay Chris Paul and. <laughs> And it just sucks. It would it would drive me crazy if I were running the Rockets. Um, so that's the way it goes. Well, hey, it could be worse. I mean, they still went to the conference finals. They still sold for more than what a billion dollars. I mean, like don't don't cry tears for the Rockets. Like, yes, it's frustrating, and like it would be agonizing to spend years like trying to come up with every little like you know uh, crazy cap formula and, and loophole to like put some of these trades together that he's put together. But like, hey, I mean, they still had a lot of success i mean there's a lot of worse teams out there that Houston. look i'm never gonna be crying too many tears for the houston rockets so don't worry good, good. um that, i was worried you were selling out there for a second i'm glad stay true to your roots luke says dream with me for a minute the bucks sneak past the celtics in the eastern conference finals lose to the warriors in five games clay thompson becomes a free agent in 2019 and signs with Giannis inc as the senior director of shooting threes <laughs> Clay and Giannis rule the East for years to come. I'm no sycophant, but I had to share this thought with you guys. Uh, ben, I hope you're proud of my sycophant pronunciation. Is he? Well, is he a psychophant though? I mean, <laughs> he might be a psychophant. I, I think you and I are both psychophants when it comes to Giannis. Um, here's the thing, though. I don't. I think Clay is like 20% better on offense than Chris Middleton. Maybe, maybe not even that much. Um, Actually, let's say let's give him a solid twenty. I don't know if Clay is that much of an upgrade over Middleton, though, and um, I don't know if like Clay and Giannis are not going to rule the East for years to come, in my opinion. Is it crazy to think that Clay would play for the Warriors for the minimum? (laughs) Like, I know there's all this Max talk out there, (laughs) but like, I mean, he doesn't 
he's he wears his heart on his sleeve. That's why everybody loves Clay. Yeah. But that is going to be the test of like whether Joe Lacob, you know, uh, plays himself and like goes too far and like pushes too hard. Because if you really wanted to have like a strong negotiation posture against Clay Thompson, just be like, look, man, we want to keep this core four together. We need some sacrifices. Like, what is Clay's leverage? Like, he obviously wants to be there. He's perfectly happy. He would play for the Warriors for the next 20 years if he was allowed. He's a perfect fit. He knows it. He doesn't take any of it for granted. Uh, he's able to work through his slumps because they're so potent offensively. He doesn't take – he takes zero criticism yep. uh, nationally. He's never been criticized during their run, uh, regardless of how well he shot the ball or how poorly he shot the ball. He's got life made. Lots of organizations out there in that type of situation would try to like you know squeeze those guys for pennies. Do you think Golden State will, or do you think they'll just pay them like they paid Steph? No, I don't think they they, they will, and I do think that it's going to be really interesting to see how it shakes out because I think that if if Golden State offered Clay the full max, he might turn around and say, you know what, I'll take a twenty million dollar discount, just not twenty million annually, but like. Take twenty million off the top. He's playing. He's playing for ten dollars and some dog biscuits for Rocco. I mean, yeah. But here's the thing: like, we might find out exactly how chill Clay really is because he certainly does seem pretty laid back and cool with whatever. And you know, he's gonna be. It's the difference between one hundred and thirty or one hundred and fifty million. Like, he'll be fine regardless. Um, but I think it's sort of like a pride issue um, where. If they do try to lowball him, then he will start to look around. And he should, because he's been integral to everything they've done for the last couple of years. He's not Steph or Draymond, but like he's a Hall of Famer in his own right. I, I wouldn't blame him for wanting to get at least the max offer, and then maybe you can talk, and, and he and Bob Myers can hash it out. You know how strange it was to see Dwayne Wade wearing that Bulls jersey for the first time? Oh, my God. I already, f- I feel like Clay's already reached that status in my mind where if you put him in a Lakers jersey or a Bucks jersey like uh, Luke is suggesting or one of these other teams, wouldn't your head explode just right off the top? I mean, like, he's already reached that level. He's, what, barely 30, right? Yeah. I also, I'm not sure how great he would be. I think he'd be awesome next to LeBron. Um, if you put him next to LeBron and Anthony Davis, like, sure, he'd be great. Uh, do you think he wants to, I mean, we, I, we could talk for days about, oh, do guys want to play with LeBron or not? I, I, I kind of believe no. that there's fewer guys <laughs> who want to play with them. Can you imagine Clay wanting to play with LeBron though? Not in a million years. And that it's shocking to me <laughs> that that has been mentioned as often as it has been. I get that Michael Thompson played for the Lakers, but like, come on, are you kidding me? Um, and by the way, we this will be fun audio to splice out when Clay signs with the Lakers this, this summer. But <laughs> I would be shocked. Um, anyways, yeah, stay in stay in Golden State, Clay, or stay in the Bay. Um, Michael says, in case you haven't been paying attention to the Suns, and really, why would you be? I have a quick update for you guys. 2016 fourth overall pick, Josh Jackson. His shooting splits are 37, 24. 36. One of those has got to be free throw percentage, which is not great. Um, he's like a, th- he's almost halfway to the 50, 40, 90. Oh <laughs> he just my needs to God. work. He could be halfway there in a little bit if he just keeps working on his stroke. Yes. And all this is happening while fifth overall pick De'Aaron Fox enjoys a breakout season running point for the six and three Sacramento Kings. 
Meanwhile, I guess six and four now. Um, meanwhile, the Suns are sporting the worst point guard rotation in modern NBA history. Another fun fact, Ryan Anderson is somehow shooting just 23% from three on looks that are almost entirely wide open, while Trevor Ariza is shooting 34% from the field. On top of all that, DeAndre Ayton is one of the worst help defenders I've ever seen. How can you have a 7'5 wingspan and a 40-inch vertical but only block .6 shots per game? Life as a Suns fan is hell. That's a great Suns update. It had been too long since we had talked about the Suns. I don't know if we have to say much more than Michael did, um, but yeah. They are the toughest watch, um, you know, compared to what they should be. Yeah. Like, in theory, this is a fantasy team owner's dream team, right? DeAndre Ayton, 2010s, and Devin Booker, guys like you think he's really good. And, I mean, you've even talked yourself into TJ Warren as being this difference maker, but actually watching them on the court has been so rough it's a perfect example of the need to have a point guard of just basic competence to get anything the best out of any of your players any of the other positions this is the type of team that uh you know can look in the mirror and say we probably did the right thing firing our gm one week before the season started i mean even though that's a a terrible look i mean you know it's <laughs> like this is what they built it, might it as well is, just admit it was a complete disaster if nothing else this is validating for whoever decided to fire ryan mcdonough but it's nice to see that ryan mcdonough's legacy is still alive and well um particularly one of the dumbest things that they have ever done was taking josh jackson and and really deciding they were taking josh jackson like a month before the draft despite the presence of De'Aaron fox right there as a perfect pairing with Devin Booker in the backcourt. And they, like, Eric Bledsoe was on his last legs at that point, and for some reason they thought that they had that point guard position solved. And they so they worked out De'Aaron Fox, but he was never really considered. That's still just amazingly dumb to me. Um, really rough. Probably not the top five mistake they made, no, but definitely rough. <laughs> hey, will you riff with me for a little bit here? Because, you know, Sam Hinkie has really enjoyed this, like, kind of, post-firing honeymoon where like he's just finding validation in all these different places right oh the process worked and like he was really riding that buzz what if anything will ryan mcdonough's validation uh, come from like is he gonna have anything from this group i mean dragon bender is basically already out of the nba marquise chris is not really playing any minutes for houston after they already agreed to trade him away um booker if he's making progress, I'm barely seeing it. And then DeAndre Ayton, I mean, I guess that would be the guy. No. Like maybe the validation comes from Ayton, but it took like four straight years of tanking to get that number one pick. And there's still questions whether he's going to be the best player from his draft. I mean, those are huge questions in my mind. Where is the validation going to come for Ryan McDonough, or is it just already has the ship sailed? Okay, I have an answer there, but before we get to McDonough, you did mention Hanky, and that reminds me that I don't know if we should be so quick to award this Suns team the mantle of worst point guard rotation in modern NBA history, because Hanky's last year in Philadelphia... They entered the year without a starting point guard, and I remember talking to someone at six at Summer League in Vegas, and it was someone with the Sixers, 
And I had been a vocal critic of the process at various points. And I, I remember going to them and being like, so are you guys going to sign a point guard? Is, is like, you can't just not have a point guard. And lo and behold, they did enter the year without a point guard. And, uh, and that team, I don't even remember who they had actually. It was mostly TJ McConnell. Um, I think they had Scotty well, Wilbekin at some look, point. I, I take all your points. I'd still have TJ McConnell over anybody Phoenix. Has. Yeah. <laughs> I would still, I would still do it. I would. Look, Elliot Kobo is doing okay. And I think the plan, you were a little harder on Devin Booker than you should have been. He hasn't been healthy through these first few weeks. He could still have a great, great year. Um, and the plan is to have him. Yeah, you've been saying that for four years, though. We've been waiting. <laughs> okay. We've been waiting for this great year. Andrew. Well, the answer is Aiton could turn into the next David Robinson, and you're still not going to give Ryan McDonough any credit for taking the number one pick, the guy who was consensus well, the best in the he's draft. He's not going to do that. I mean, David Robinson could play better defense at age seven <laughs> okay. than DeAndre Aiton right now in his NBA debut. I'm just what's, saying, a great, even, what's a great season for you for for Devin Booker? 75 points in a 20-point loss, or, or what? What are you saying? What's your marker for a great season? All I'm saying is the even the wildest Aiton hypothetical doesn't help McDonough. He's going to need... Here's what Ryan McDonough needs. He needs Devin Booker to go off, uh, but it has to happen like four years down the line. The, the next three seasons in Phoenix have to be wild failures also under a completely new regime to where everybody looks at Robert Sarver and it's just like are you like the, you are the worst owner in sports and it is it is between <laughs> Sarver and Dan Gilbert for worst owner in the NBA. I think Dan Gilbert probably has the edge right now, but bottom line, if Devin Booker goes somewhere else and becomes like a top 25 all-time guard, eventually you're going to have to give Ryan McDonough credit for getting him at thir- 13 or 14 or wherever Phoenix picked him that one year. You actually used very similar logic to what I was going to propose. My proposal was that Sarver was going to lose his mind this year and fire Igor like after 40 games, you know, because he's just still frustrated that nothing's working. Then Igor was going to get hired by another organization that was more stable and wind up being one of these coaches <laughs> who like does better in his second round. So then McDonough could go back and say, look, I screwed up every draft pick that I got. I got probably a little too much credit for the Booker pick. I lucked into that one. He's fine. But I made a great hire with Igor, and Sarver just didn't see it through. Yeah, well, the one thing he did get right, he was responsible for drafting Rondo in Boston, I believe. Um, at least that's that's how the story was told when McDonough was first hired in Phoenix. So he's got Rondo. He might have Booker. He might have Igor. Um, but I think it's best for everyone that he is as far away from this sun season as he can get. Um, last question from Nome in Israel. He says, Hey guys, I need some open floor life coaching. I was getting onto a public bus on Friday and in front of me was this girl with a leather jacket, skinny jeans, fancy nails, and the general air of someone I would never talk to on public transportation. But then I noticed she was watching a video of Kemba Walker highlights. I thought about it for like 10 minutes, but ultimately decided against talking to her. A friend of mine says I should have gone for it, but I told him that for me to talk to a stranger on public transportation, it would need to be Jokic highlights at least. Could you please weigh in on whose highlights would be enough for you to embarrass yourself on a bus? 
So there's a lot there, Ben. Uh, what? Do you have any thoughts? Uh, there's absolutely a lot there. First of all, gnomes from Israel, right? Yes. If you're on a public bus in Israel and you see a woman watching Kemba highlights, forget about you know being a nerd or like you know being afraid to talk to strangers. You need to have a conversation. <laughs> Half, halfway across the world watching Kemba Walker highlights. You just need that person in your life, period. It's, you don't have to be looking at someone like, oh, this is going to be like my future wife or my f- future significant other right. or whatever. You need to look for those moments and just find a lasting connection with the fellow uh, you know, soul traveler. I mean, wouldn't you say that's that's almost faded? I mean, if you're on a bus in Israel and you're two Kemba Walker fans, you know, watching highlights, like as you're passing the time of day, I feel like you probably are BFFs and uh, you've been put there by the basketball gods to have a conversation. That would be my initial take is, look, I'm married, so I'm not looking to just like chat up some ra- random stranger on public transportation, regardless of whether She's watching basketball highlights. But if I were in Israel and a woman was watching Kemba Walker highlights, I would want to know why. Like, what is it about Kemba? How did you end up here? It's one thing if it's Steph or Durant or LeBron, but, like, Charlotte Hornets highlights are a pretty deep cut halfway across the world. You know, every once in a while when I'm out on my little, like, uh, you know, daily walks, and I've told you how I do that to kind of keep, you know, balance in my life, you know, I'll be walking through this bird refuge and there'll be the guys out there with like the birding hats and the really long birding lens. And for a while, I used to kind of look at those guys and and think, you know, uh, at least I haven't completely fallen off the deep end. Like, at least there's still people out there who are like deeper into this bird game than I am. Yeah. But more recently, I found myself trying to make small talk with those people, and this isn't like a you know a, a bus Kemba Walker romance that we're trying to describe for Noam. But I have found that first of all, strangers in general are pretty guarded when you're trying to just randomly make conversations with yeah, them. Yeah, but as if they you can be. establish, yeah, as they should be. But if you can establish a level of rapport and prove that you're both aficionados, you know, every once in a while, I'll be like, hey have you seen the great blue today? You know, something like that. And, you know, try to wiggle my way in with a little birder knowledge. You can start up a pretty good, interesting conversation and get some tips on, you know, the best places to try to see the birds and so forth. So maybe what Noam really missed out on is this woman's incredible knowledge about Kemba Walker. She might've just been dropping complete (laughs) like knowledge bombs on him. And now he's sitting over there thinking, Oh, I should have waited for Nikola Jokic. Noam, you're assuming that you know more about the NBA than that woman does. It's quite possible she could have just blown your mind with a whole lot of information that you wish you would know right now. So now I'm trying to guilt trip you into the next time this happens, you better try to keep an open mind and learn some information and not carry yourself like you're this basketball know-it-all, God's gift to basketball fans. Yeah, speaking of Kemba Walker videos, Kemba Walker, it's, it's a long story, but he once recorded a cell phone video talking trash to a friend of a friend of mine and he was very funny and very in on the joke and uh it was a really good sport about all of it and so i i kemba was one of the cooler dudes in the nba um off topic but the to answer the question and, and to, to sort of round this out here a couple years ago if i had seen a girl watching Giannis highlights that's a situation where it's like, oh my God, this this is fate. This is meant to be. I have to go talk to her. Now I think Giannis is too big of a star and too mainstream where like everybody's a Giannis fan. You're not unique. Um, but 
whose highlights would be enough for you to embarrass yourself and talk to this person? Uh, for me, if I did see someone watching like De'Aaron Fox highlights on a bus, I would have to go say what's up and be like, isn't it crazy how good De'Aaron Fox has looked this week? Like it, you have to f- be passionate enough to to work through the awkwardness and to it's so it's not even awkward. You just you're trying to share some enthusiasm with someone else. Look, it could be a Plumley brother. If I'm in Israel and I see another basketball fan, I'm talking to oh, that for person sure. That's regardless. A good point. Yeah. And, let me also say this, though. Noam, stop creeping on people's cell phones on a bus, man. Let people watch what they want to <laughs> watch. You know watch. what, though? That's, a, that's a huge pet peeve of mine. I don't like when people are trying to look, look over my shoulder or, like, see what I'm, like, you know, reading or, you know, oh, commenting on some link that I'm reading. Oh, yeah, The Atlantic. That's a great article. I read that. <laughs> get, get off my shoulder. <laughs> I'm doing me. You do you. It's a human impulse, though. I can't hate on anybody I because I do it, too. You know? It is what it is. Um, but... Well, that's even creepier. You're the lowest of the low. If you're going to look at someone else's phone and then not talk to them about it, guess what? You and Noam are both creeps, you know okay? So at least at least try to spin it forward and be like, look, I couldn't help but notice you're watching a Kemba Walker highlight. Can we please <laughs> chat about that now? Like that would at least like bring you back to reality a little bit because right now you're basically just an FBI agent without a badge. Yeah, well, this is spun completely out of control. Um, all right, so... We had to record most of this podcast Sunday night uh, after recording another podcast. I hope that we were coherent throughout the entire thing. Andrew, we were great, and you better not apologize. And people, if you want to keep these great questions like Noam's coming, Noam, by the way, I was just pulling your leg. Just next time you see someone watching Kemba Highlights, talk to him. You'll be great. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Hey, Andrew, you know they can check us out on the world-famous radio.com. And also on Apple Podcasts, give us those five-star uh, reviews. We really appreciate it. And don't be afraid uh, you know, to, to say something nice in the comments. You know, Boost our egos up a little bit. We always uh, read those and, and take those to heart. Hey, Andrew, until next week, I will talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.